The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks looking to rebound from Friday's broad-based sell-off, with futures right now up triple digits. Also trying to claw back some losses, shares of Tesla right now edging higher, After a nearly 10% haircut on Friday, we've got the latest ahead. And it's not just stocks. Oil is also, get this, edging higher this morning as retail gasoline prices hit another record high and possibly closer to a consumer breaking point. Plus, drama at 10 Downing Street out in the UK. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson is set to face a vote of confidence later on this evening. We have a live report from London ahead. And then later on... It is Apple, first in-person developers conference we've had there in years. The latest from Tim Cook and company is coming up. It is Monday, June 6th, 2022, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's kick things off in this hour with a check on the markets and your money. Right now, stock futures are indicating a rebound. The Dow is implied higher by roughly 280 points, the S&P higher by around 45, and the Nasdaq higher by almost 190 points at this point. Technology, a key focus for a lot of investors now with that Nasdaq trade. Now, this is all after the Dow posted its ninth negative week out of the last 10, with a more than 1% loss on Friday. Sharp declines on Friday for the S&P and the Nasdaq as well, coming off their worst days since mid-May. Let's check on the bond market. Interest rates, a key part of that market thesis, especially for tech stocks. You can see the 10-year Treasury note yield edging slightly higher to 2.96%. The two-year note yield, 2.69%. And the 30-year long bond actually showing a little bit of strength in terms of prices, weakness in terms of the overall yields, 3.11%, the last trade there. We've seen continued resistance around that 3% mark for the 10-year yield. Much more on that later on in the show. And in the oil market, crude oil prices are higher again this morning as gasoline hits a fresh all-time high again. Right now, U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, $119.22. That's up about one-quarter of 1%. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, up about one-quarter of 1% as well, $119.97. Now, in cryptocurrencies... Bitcoin continues to hover right around that 30,000 mark on either end of it. Right now, those prices are higher. 31,424, the last trade up about 5%. Ether prices up about 4.5% to just a hair below $1,900. The entire cryptocurrency ecosystem, if you will, is up in price on the day. So we'll see if that keeps up. Now, that's here. But we have a major developing story overseas. It is British Prime Minister Boris Johnson facing a vote that could remove him from power after dozens of his own party lawmakers wrote letters calling for his ousting. CNBC's Rosanna Lockwood is in our London newsroom with the latest there and following this drama. Rosanna, what can you tell us about whether or not this is possibly going to happen? Could Boris Johnson be removed? 
He needs 180 members of the Conservative Party later on today, Dom, about eight hours from now, to basically say they have no confidence in him as a leader. This is high drama, as you said. It's the closest we get to something like an impeachment here in the UK. Votes of no confidence, basically, uh, do what they say on the tin. They basically say, we don't have confidence in you as the leader anymore. Former Prime Minister Theresa May a few years ago, she actually survived one. There have been quite a few through history. Now, this story has been brewing for many months. You might remember back in January there was this investigation launched into parties that were held at 10 Downing Street during the peak of lockdown restrictions here in the UK. There was a lot of public anger about that. Well, the report was publicly released last week and I don't know if you're watching the Platinum Jubilee celebrations over the weekend. Most of the world was. Boris Johnson did look somewhat glum and one has to suspect, did he know what was coming on this Monday morning? It's pouring with rain here in London this morning. Some are saying it's a bit of a hangover from the Jubilee and all the MPs suddenly coming back from a recess and saying, we're filing this vote of no confidence. It could mean that he stands down as leader tonight. Whether or not he will, that's basically a game of speculation at the moment. Some are saying he's got too much backing from within his own party, but it could rock his, uh, you know, tenability as a prime minister heading forward. Of course, there's lots of interesting jockeying happening within 10 Downing Street and has been for the last sort of six months or so, but who could replace him as leader if he stands down? We'll have to see whether tomorrow morning we basically have a new prime minister here in the UK. Though some are saying he's ultimately the Teflon man. He's non-stick. Nothing really sticks when it comes to him. He's managed to survive plenty of scandals before. He could survive this one. The process by which this has been filed is called the 1922 Committee. It's basically a process here in the UK where letters are anonymously sent in. But some MPs here in the UK have actually publicly tweeted their letters this morning. There's been some absolutely eviscerating condemnations of Johnson's prime ministership, talking about lying and a culture of drinking and partying in Downing Street. So really, it is fascinating stuff. And it's interesting that it took until this moment, right until after the Platinum Jubilee, for this to be announced. Rosanna Lockwood with a high drama in the highest levels of government in the UK. Thank you very much. I'm sure you'll keep us posted on the developments over there. Let's get a check on some of this morning's other top stories as well. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, good Monday morning, Dom. Well, Carl Icahn is dropping his proxy fight with grocery giant Kroger, focused on the treatment of pregnant pigs. The move comes after Icon lost a proxy fight with McDonald's over a similar issue. While Icon does congratulate Kroger and McDonald's on the proxy fight victories, he maintains that he does not believe their boards are holding their management teams accountable with respect to the treatment of animals or welfare of their employees. The White House is reportedly preparing to announce that it will not impose any new tariffs on solar imports for at least two years, according to The Wall Street Journal. The move is aimed at getting hundreds of stalled domestic solar projects back on track after a Commerce Department investigation into whether Chinese solar producers were illegally circumventing tariffs brought the entire industry to a near halt. And major U.S. hedge fund Elliott Management is suing the London Metal Exchange for more than $456 million over its decision to suspend and cancel nickel trades back in March. Elliott alleges the cancellation of nickel contract trades on March 8th was unlawful on public law grounds. LME, which is owned by Kong Exchanges and Clearing, says it will contest the claims vigorously, viewing it as without merit, Dom. All right, Silvana, thank you very much for those headlines. We appreciate it. Back to the markets now, looking to shake off another losing week as investors now turn their attention towards the latest reads on inflation. The May Consumer Price Index reading is expected to show a slight dip from April, which could further signal that inflation has perhaps peaked. Perhaps. 
For more on that and what else investors need to watch right now, let's bring in Mark Lopresti, co-managing director of the strategic funds and alternative asset management firm focused on niche investment strategies. Mark, I wonder if we've been talking so much about inflation that this is the point right now that the conversation has come to a head. Could that be the contrarian indicator that perhaps means inflation may have peaked? Well, Tom, good morning. And I certainly hope so, because like most folks, I'm getting tired of talking about nothing but inflation. But in an environment like this, it's impossible to ignore. We are obviously hoping that the number comes in on Friday at or around the street's expectation of about 8.2. This is a really sensitive print coming out on Friday, Dom. If it's any hotter than that, we could see the market react very negatively. So we're watching that, especially on the heels of last week, with the interesting mix of mixed bag of labor numbers and very sanguine comments from Elon Musk uh, in the labor environment. So it's interesting because you have those cross currents right now, right? A, a decent jobs report. You've got anecdotal maybe evidence out there, just just bits and pieces of companies out there saying that they are going to slow hiring, maybe rescind some of their extended job offers, that sort of thing. Is 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 the interest rate discussion here? If inflation hypothetically comes in hotter, is interest rates the main driver right now of what that downside in the stock market could be? It, it, look, it is, but the, those two things are inextricably connected. The Fed watches, of course, very carefully, not only at the unemployment numbers, but the labor participation numbers. And what last week told us, Tom, was that a lot of companies, particularly in the tech sector, which has already been much maligned and beat up in this value rotation, which we can certainly talk about, had actually perhaps overhired. Such was the case with Tesla. I think that caught the street by surprise. I think that may have also caught the Fed by surprise because that labor market and the health of the labor market is, is perhaps the most important thing that the Fed and the Fed governors watch in determining monetary policy. So let's talk about where that rubber meets the road. You mentioned this idea sure. of a value rotation, growth rotation, everything kind of moving and shifting yeah. around. Is it safe to say that that energy trade remains intact? There has certainly been the relative strength argument right now. The trend has been the friend of many of these energy and oil and gas investors right now. But is that due for a slowdown anytime soon? Well, listen, there's certainly lots of folks that think that it is given where, you know, oil is and that gas. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately for the American consumer, perhaps not for bullish traders like myself in energy markets, I think there is still room for the major energy names to continue to the upside. And that is because of the uh, global geopolitical setup, Dom. It's due to uh, what we're looking at in terms of weather forecasted uh, here in the United States and other parts of the world. And comments that we've heard uh, from OPEC uh, about what they're going to do or not do in terms of global supply. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, there is still some room that you have to be cautious buying, you know, buying on dips, of course. But I think there is still upside room to run in energy. So, so I mean, l- let's say that there is. I mean, everything in energy is up these days. If you look over the yeah. last year or so, where, where then do you deploy capital? What kinds of companies, what stocks are you looking at? So we like companies in the midstream space. You know, we uh, substantially underinvested in this country in midstream, even prior to this remarkable uh, energy bull market that we've been dealing with for a year or so now. Uh, so companies like uh, Energy Transfer, 
which of course pays a nice dividend. Uh, Kinder Morgan, if you think energy transfer, which is looming around its 52-week highs right now, uh, you could look at it as an alternative. Uh, those are major players in the midstream space. Um, and in power, so in terms of power transmission, and we think that that's going to be really interesting this year in the U.S., with a very, very hot summer being predicted by the folks that are experts in weather, we're looking at companies like Duke Energy and Nextera to play that trend. All right. Midstream energy and utilities out there is the trade from Mark Lepresti. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. When we come back on the show, details on a huge pop in shares of Didi ahead of the open. Plus, Elon Musk's about face when it comes to hiring plans over at that EV giant. But first, our gasoline prices closing in on a consumer breaking point. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Another day, another record high for retail gasoline prices. According to AAA, the current national average for regular unleaded stands at just under $4.87 per gallon. That's up more than 59% compared to the same time last year. Now, in the past four weeks alone, RBOB, RBOB, gasoline futures prices have gone up more than 14%. And right now, they are sitting at their highest level on record. So where do prices go from here? And how long can consumers hold on and pay these higher prices? Joining me now is OPIS Chief Oil Analyst Denton Chinquagrana. Uh, Denton, I, 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 I'm curious only because I drove into work this morning sure. and I paid for fuel. It was $4.93 in New Jersey, so already just slightly higher than the national average. And New Jersey is one of those places that had relatively cheaper gas before the pandemic really started. So this retail trade for gasoline, I'm paying it, millions of Americans are. When do we say, nah, I'm going to drive less? Well, that's the question I think we're going to get an answer to pretty soon here. Uh, as you mentioned before, the, the national average is at 487 or so. There's 10 states above $5 right now. Another four, New Jersey being one of them, will probably hit five this week. Uh, I think once we hit $5, we're going to start to start to see some, some answers to that question. Anecdotally, one of the things we've been hearing is that uh, you have kind of this, this 
group of, of, of drivers who religiously use premium. But once premium gasoline, which is now about $5.50, uh, reached $5, they started downgrading to regular. So I wonder, what is $5 that kind of pain point where people start to say, all right, enough's enough, we're going to drive less? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the prices I saw at the pump this morning were $5.55 to $5.70 per gallon for that premium unleaded option. I, I, I The sticker shot, I mean, at this point, I and, and everybody else out there have seen the pictures, right, and the videos from nightly news broadcasts across the country showing those pictures of gasoline prices. I mean, there's one station in California where they're charging all, uh, around $9.90 a gallon. I mean, forget about pushing five. You're pushing $10 per gallon in certain markets. That is obviously not the norm. But at what point do you say this is going to be an issue for all of us? And, and what can the administration do about it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dom. And that's the thing. You know, when we consider high gasoline prices, we should also consider high diesel prices. So the cost of diesel, uh, everything you buy in the grocery store, everything you buy just about anywhere is got, got to that point by a diesel truck. Uh those costs are going to be passed on to the consumer. It's just going to lift prices. Something's eventually going to break. And, you know, that, that's, that's kind of the big, big worry right now. Okay. If Americans right now are looking at these prices, is there any time right now that they can see relief? At one point, is it going to be a price that dents demand, or is it going to be the supply side of things when we see oil companies producing more oil and refiners putting more product to market, how exactly does that dynamic play out if we are to see at least a move down hypothetically in prices? I think you're going to need to see the demand response before the supply response. Refiners are, are producing at really high levels. And again, when you get into the summertime and, and hot weather, you know, things could break down. So I think we need to see the, supply, uh, the demand response first. People probably need to consume less uh, here in the United States, and that should help level off prices and give supply a chance to catch up. Uh, but then, you know, as we get into the fall and the, usually the last hundred days of the year is when gasoline prices are, are their cheapest. That's probably you know, when you could almost guarantee that we'll see some relief. So it's hard to guarantee anything nowadays. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I, I get that. At, at what point here is this, this is an energy? I mean, first of all, let's hope this is a short term phenomenon. If it is not, do you then have to look towards more of a runway for the oil and gas industry in order for those prices to be brought more under control and become more stable? In other words, do we need more refineries? I mean, more refineries would help. What we saw, you know, this goes back to 2020 in the pandemic. You saw a period where refineries were not making much money. So they reduced, uh, reduced runs. Some of them closed down. Some of them are being converted to produce uh, renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. So now you've taken some traditional hydrocarbon production out of the mix. Uh, probably a, a couple of new refineries would help. But again, you can't just snap your fingers and a new refinery gets built up. It takes some time. Uh, it's obviously investment decisions that need to go into place. And then permitting process, it's, it would take a really long time. So while that might be a, a good answer, uh, it's probably not the right answer. Now, granted, 2023, 24, 25, we're going to see a lot of refining capacity come online globally. Uh, Nigeria is planning on a, a really large refinery to be uh, commissioned later this year. A lot more in the Middle East, a lot more of Asia. So you're going to see, uh, you know, more refined products on the global market. All right. Denton Cinquegrana over at the Oil Price Information Service, the chief oil analyst there. Thank you very much. We appreciate your thoughts. Thanks, Tom. Still on deck for the show. We're breaking out CNBC's supply chain heat map once again. 
and taking a closer look at one of the biggest ports in China. Worldwide Expect. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The phased reopening of Shanghai continues with a full reopening expected by the end of the month. Once manufacturing and trucking completely resumes, a surge in containers is expected to follow. CNBC's senior editor, Lorianne Larocco, joins us now with more on the potential supply chain impact of that big reopening process. So, Lorianne, what can you tell us about are things going to loosen up anytime soon? Oh, most definitely not, Don. Good morning. Uh, let's get right to it. So I spoke with the Port of New York and New Jersey about what we're going to see. And so all of these containers, once Shanghai fully opens, it's going to take six to eight weeks for them to arrive. And the port is expecting a hockey stick style surge, if you will, of containers. The, the one that you want to look at this week is Savannah. And I spoke with the port last week and they're, they're telling me they're seeing an increased amount of unscheduled vessels because of the fears of the ILWU strike. And marine traffic is expecting 10 days of processing because of the increased vessels. Now, on the West Coast, things may look green, but don't be fooled. They're still having warehouse capacity and rail issues. And so let's get right to China, the heartbeat of all of this. Vessel availability and trucking are still very, very tight. In Shanghai, manufacturers are still seeing raw material shortages as a result of what we're seeing with the trucking. As a result, exports are down. Now, I'm really excited about this. We have a brand new heat map to unveil to you. It's Europe. It's a vital trading partner for the United States. Logistics managers there are telling me they're concerned on the availability of empty containers for European exports to the United States. The port of Hamburg, it is the heartbeat of the world. The threat of an operator strike is impacting productivity as we speak. And rail is suspended for export containers because of containers stuck on the rail and construction. And so what exactly does all of this mean? We're talking inflation. I want to show you this chart. This shows you that the impact of the higher container prices, which are still at record levels, and the energy uh, surcharges that are being added. And patio love seats and fire pits are topping that list. So this is the state of the supply chain, and a complete breakdown will be on CNBC.com this morning. Dom? Uh, so, so Lorianne, this is, this is kind of what we've been seeing for a while. It's maybe not a surprise, but it's just the surprise that it's ongoing for as long as it has. You broke a story here on Worldwide Exchange on U.S. exports being denied by carriers in favor of sending back empty containers. The Port of Oakland and the U.S. Department of Agriculture just announced financial assistance to help compensate farmers. What can you tell us about the exports out of that particular Port of Oakland? 
Well, it's been a big problem there because because of the congestion we've seen on the West Coast, particularly with Los Angeles, the port of Oakland is being skipped. And the reason why is vessel schedules are off by a week. And so when you look at this chart, the, the, the wait time, if you will, of containers for exports is down 18 percent. But look at the imports. These are the products coming in. It is so slow. It's up 103 percent because guess what? Importers are slow to pick up their containers. And it's the importers that are slowing down the productivity. It's so nuanced, this whole story. Not in one time in my career have I ever seen everybody so focused on transportation logistics. Lorianne LaRocco, thank you very much for the update there. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines as well. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the latest. Good morning, Philip. Hi, Dom. Good morning. The U.S. and South Korea joined forces early Monday morning, firing eight missiles in response to launches by North Korea. On Sunday, the Kim Jong-un regime fired eight ballistic missiles off its east coast in what is likely the country's largest ever single test. Like the North Korean launches, the American and South Korean missiles were all fired into the ocean. Gunfire in Pennsylvania sends hundreds running for their lives. Police believe a street fight led to all this chaos. Three people were killed. At least 12 others were injured. Police are still searching for suspects there. Meanwhile, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, another mass shooting took three lives outside of a nightclub. Two were killed by the gunfire, and the third died when they were struck by a car while trying to run away. In total, 14 people were shot and two others injured by cars. According to the Gun Violence Archive, 15 people were killed in 11 mass shootings this weekend across eight states. Now to the NBA Finals. The Golden State Warriors were looking to bounce back after a tough Game 1 defeat. Golden State has a lot of time. Pool with the ball. Launches. After a really bad game one, Jordan Poole dove into game two on a mission. 17 points off the bench, including that buzzer beater from about half court. The Warriors dominated the second half, and they blew the Celtics out of the water. Golden State takes game two, 107-88, to tying the series at one game apiece. Game three is in Boston on Wednesday. Both these teams are pretty evenly matched, Dom, so I think we're in for a long series. I, I, I say so, but as a Northern California native, I got to pull for the Warriors. I hope you understand. I, I completely, you know, <laughs> you can't, it's hard to root against uh, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry over there. All right. Thank you very much, Philip Menner, mm-hmm. for that. As we head out to break here on the Worldwide Exchange, a quick market flash. And Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK is the ticker seeing a bit of a bounce back since bottoming out in early May. It's up more than 20% compared to the S&P 500's 4.5% gain over that same period. But here's the context. The fund is still down more than 50% this year. Plus, during these volatile and uncertain times for the market, CNBC is offering some perspective on how to protect your investments in the midst of today's market turmoil. Here's CNBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson with a few quick tips on how to diversify. Here's a tip for your money, your future. For investors, navigating inflation requires having a well-diversified portfolio with growth and value stocks to help boost total returns, along with interest from cash and bonds. Dividend-paying stocks that pay a consistent dividend also can help weather market volatility. A dividend is a portion of a company's earnings that are paid out as a reward to shareholders, often by companies that have strong, predictable cash flow. 
So even as stock prices slide, holdings that pay a steady dividend may offer some stability. For CNBC, I'm Sharon Epperson. Stocks looking to shake off another losing week as investors gear up for the latest read on inflation. Futures are suggesting a higher open on tap. Elon Musk making a U-turn on job cuts at Tesla. His new comments suggesting the EV maker is actually looking to hire. And Apple pulling back the curtain on its next steps, a look at what the tech giant may have up its sleeve amid growing worries about slowing device sales and perhaps even services revenue. This is Monday, June 6th, 2020. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chiu in this morning for Brian Sullivan. It's right around 5.33 a.m. Eastern time right here on the East Coast. And here is how the markets and your money are looking right now. Futures are implying a 250-point gain for the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the opening bell. The S&P 500 is implied higher by roughly 40 points and the Nasdaq higher by 170. That technology trade, a key driver of the big Nasdaq move higher this morning. This is all after the Dow posted its ninth negative week out of the last 10 with a more than a 1% loss on Friday. Sharp declines Friday as well for the S&P 500 and Nasdaq coming off their worst days since mid-May. If we check on the bond market, that's a big part of the investing thesis right now, especially in growth and technology stocks. The 10-year Treasury note yield ticks a little bit higher to a shade below 2.96%. The two-year Treasury note yield about 2.68%. And the 30-year long bond right now ticking just slightly lower, a little below 3.11% there. In the oil market, crude prices are higher again this morning as gasoline prices hit fresh all-time highs. Crude oil prices right now for U.S. benchmark WTI, $119.53. That's up about a half a percent. Similar percentage move for ice Brent crude, the world benchmark gauge, $120.37. And even natural gas prices up about roughly 4% right now to $8.84. Now to some of this morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Silvana. Hey, Don. Well, shares of Amazon are set to begin trading today at a drastically lower price as the company's 20-for-1 stock split takes effect. Shares close Friday at $2,447 each. They're set to open at a new price of around $122 per share. The move, which was approved late last month, could provide some benefits for Amazon stock, including potentially opening the door to the tech giant being included in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Shares of Didi surging in the pre-market after China reportedly announced it's wrapped up its cybersecurity probe of the ride-hailing company. According to the Wall Street Journal, officials are also preparing to lift a ban on Didi, adding new, adding new users as early as this week, as well as allow its app back on domestic app stores. The app was removed last July. The move comes as worries mount about China's economy and its crackdown on local tech companies. Abbott Nutrition has resumed production of baby formula at its Michigan plant at the center of the ongoing shortage in this country. The FDA giving the company the okay to begin work at the facility after it was closed in February over contamination concerns. Abbott is aiming to release new batches of formula from the plant later this month. And Tesla CEO Elon Musk seeming to retract his recent statement that the EV maker will be pausing hiring over a super bad feeling about the economy's outlook. Responding to a tweet claiming that Tesla's headcount would increase over the next 12 months, Musk wrote that the total number of Tesla employees hired would increase, but that salaried staff should be fairly flat. 
Dom Musk did not clarify whether or not existing salaried employees would become hourly employees or if new employees would be hired at Tesla. We will be waiting with bated breath exactly. about whether or not a new tweet will come out on that front we'll there. See. Silvana Hanel, thank you very much for you those headlines. Turning now to Apple, as it prepares to kick off its annual developers conference later on today, that event, by the way, is expected to unveil, unveil updates to the core operating system for Apple products, as those tracking the tech giant will also look for clues about the company's long-rumored augmented reality device, maybe a headset. All this as investors grow concerned about slowing device sales. For more on what to expect from the event, let's bring in Daniel Flax, senior research analyst over at Newberger Berman. Uh, for Apple, I mean, these, these, these developer conferences, the WWDCs, all of these things provide that showcase and they generate buzz. But they typically, Daniel, and you know this as well as I do, they don't typically generate massive stock price movements here. So what exactly should Wall Street be focusing on when it comes to Apple? Good morning, Dominic. Wall Street should focus on this push forward of the user experience and really empowering the developers around the world to build new applications. So, for example, uh, I think augmented uh, and virtual reality will get even more of a focus uh, at this current uh, uh, developer conference. And, and over time, we are likely to see devices from Apple. It's important that the developers help Apple create this experience because, obviously, uh, devices will need uh, th there needs to be things for people to do. Additionally, I would expect a continued focus on healthcare and fitness, as well as this emphasis on the user privacy and, uh, and wrapped in a fun uh, experience uh, across all the devices and services. So it's interesting because when it comes to these mega cap technology slash communication services companies putting out hardware devices, not many of them can do so outside their core expertise with any success. I, I think of the Google Glass devices, right, the glasses. I think of the portal devices from Facebook. Now, they may be selling, but they maybe weren't as prevalent. I don't see them out there as many places as I think. And, and Oculus, the virtual reality headsets, I do see them in stores. I do see people actually using them sometimes, but it hasn't become mainstream. So, so what exactly is Apple looking to do with this kind of augmented reality device possibly that could be coming out today? I think it's going to be a, a continuation of this idea of integrating the hardware, the software, and the services. The, the, the build-out of, of these platforms is really about capturing a lot of different elements. It's not just the hardware. It's not just the software. If you're able to pull them together in a way that the user finds to be differentiated, fun, valuable to their lives... Uh, if you're able to do that, that, in my view, are the keys for success. And if you look back, even going back a couple of decades with the iPod, then, of course, the iPhone, the iPad, the watch, uh, this, this idea of pulling that together, and I think we'll see that over the coming several years with augmented virtual reality, is, is, is pulling these, these different pieces together uh, in a differentiated way. And Daniel, uh, one of your one of your peers, uh, Katie Huberty over at Morgan Stanley, who also covers Apple last week, issued a note reiterating a, a, an outperform or a buy rating, but, but also saying that there are some concerns about services revenue, specifically with with regard to the App Store. Do you share some of those concerns about whether or not that services kind of side of the business at Apple is, is due for a bit of a slowdown? And, and how exactly should investors treat that services business compared to the core, say, iPhone uh, business over there for hardware? I think if we step back, I think the services business has been incredibly valuable 
uh, to Apple and, of course, its customers and broader ecosystem. Given just how strong it's been during the pandemic, it is not surprising to us to see slowing growth, as, as well as in the hardware business. When we look out, though, and think about the next one to two years, we expect new devices. We expect new services. We've seen them innovate in services like Air, uh, with things like Fitness Plus. And so we see a reacceleration in services and device growth over the next year. But we, we continue to like the name. We continue to think about it uh, in terms of the product cycles. And, of course, services is a very uh, important and powerful driver to the overall story. Daniel Flax at Newberger Berman, watching that Worldwide Developers Conference very carefully. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Coming up on the show, Beijing bouncing back uh, to life at least a little bit after weeks of strict COVID restrictions and lockdowns. Our own Eunice Yoon lays out the big changes as China's capital tries to get back to work. But first, as we head out to break, here's what's making headlines. A growing number of hedge funds are apparently betting on the 10-year Treasury as it once again tests that 3% level. According to a report from Bloomberg, leverage funds have gone net short. That's the first time they've been become bearish, at least, on that 10 years since January of 2021. A union representing Starbucks workers is claiming the coffee giant is shutting down a recently unionized cafe in retaliation for the move. The union alleges the closure of the Ithaca, New York store is also aimed at stopping workers elsewhere from organizing. Starbucks says that it opens and closes stores as a regular part, quote unquote, of its operations. And speaking of Starbucks, interim CEO Howard Schultz reportedly says the coffee giant is only considering external candidates for its next CEO. Speaking to The Wall Street Journal, Schultz says the company needs to add new talent and skills to its senior leadership ranks, adding that Starbucks has recently talked to several promising CEO prospects and it hopes to identify a new CEO by the fall. Starbucks in the news. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. China's ongoing COVID lockdowns easing even further as the capital of Beijing lifts rules and restrictions put in place amid the recent spike in cases. This as the government looks to combat the growing economic impact stemming from those lockdown measures. Eunice Yoon joins us now with more from Beijing. And Eunice, what changes are taking place regarding some of these protocols? What's getting loosened and how far from normal are we? Well, we're getting closer and closer to normal. Uh, Beijing is pushing hard to try to get everything back on track, especially when it comes to business. As of today, restaurants restarted indoor dining. Entertainment venues, including cinemas, were open. Uh, capped at 75 percent, though. Also, offices, shops, even basement gyms were told that they can open their doors. Now, the big question is, after this month of tight restrictions, can the economy really come back. And today, of course, it's still early, but the capital was full of activity. Restaurants, some of them were full, others not so much. People said that they were really excited to be back at the restaurants after so long of doing food delivery. But something that we did see that was much more common was to see stacks of meals outside of office buildings because people are still ordering meals in. And one courier told us that he believed that people uh, were much more cautious still about dining out and that he hadn't really seen any drop in orders. Now, one reason why people might be a little bit hesitant is because we still have a COVID test requirement to go pretty much anywhere. So it's been loosened slightly, but we have to have a COVID test that is 
uh, less than 72 hours old. This is a, a little bit better than the 48 hours previously, but it's still something that is a source of, uh, you know, a bottleneck here. So um, it's also, um, Dom, interesting because it's kind of part of this bigger experiment that we're seeing in China. Can Beijing stick to zero COVID policy while keeping the economy going? So this COVID testing and the regular testing is, is a mechanism that would, from Beijing's perspective, allow that to happen. Eunice, this is, okay, I understand what you're trying to say, but this was very much about two different ways. Let's just boil it down to two. The U.S. had a way of dealing with COVID, and China had a way with dealing with COVID. And China is obviously probably the only place in the world that has this zero COVID policy. Now, China is getting through, arguably, COVID with this zero COVID policy, but you cannot really say that the economic impact hasn't been severe. They locked things down. People were not moving, producing, or doing anything. Meanwhile, the U.S. has taken a different approach, right? And things are opened up over here. People are getting back to work. Both ways seem to have worked out. So, so what's, the, what's the view from the citizenry in China with regard to whether or not they have that tolerance for this zero COVID policy going forward? Well, at this point, a lot of people are feeling much more relieved because we all have been living under this lockdown or a partial lockdown for quite some time. So when you look at the case numbers, people generally are feeling, okay, I could breathe a little bit. But yeah, this is a big experiment. We don't know how it's all going to play out. Um, And already there were plenty of complaints even about the COVID testing um, in Beijing. Some people were saying they had to wait one, two hours. In Shanghai, it was as much as four hours. So that is kind of a huge productivity killer and a big part of your day. Not good for business. And then, of course, nothing has changed in terms of what happens to the positive cases. So anybody who tests positive still have to go for mandatory isolation facilities. So that's something that weighs on people's minds here. And then... um, you know, of course, there's always this fear that you could be locked down. I mean, just in the past couple of days, a couple of friends of mine said, yes, I've been out. Hooray. I'm out for 48 hours. Then their building got a case and now they're locked down again. So it's that kind of uncertainty that makes it really hard for businesses to keep going and make decisions about investment. Not exactly greasing the wheels of an economy. The world's second biggest economy, by the way, Eunice. Uh, thank you very much for the report. We appreciate it. As we head out to break, throughout the month of June, we are celebrating Pride Month. So here is Francesca CEO Andrew Clark on that topic. It's more important than ever to celebrate Pride Month. Pride is the moment for us to stand up and represent our community while standing alongside other minorities in a celebration of the defense of diversity and equality in this country. Pride is happy, pride is positive, but pride is serious and pride is necessary. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The markets rally from the brink of a bear market faces an important test this week. Friday's consumer price data may offer insight into how much more the Fed will need to do in its fight against inflation. So let's bring in Jeff Kilberg, chief investment officer at Sanctuary Wealth and also a CNBC contributor, also Ivory Johnson, founder of Delancey Wealth Management. Gentlemen, thank you guys both for being here. Ivory, we'll start with you here. How important is this week in the inflation narrative for markets? Well, I think the markets are looking very closely at uh, how fast prices are rising. But, you know, it's important because the Fed has one job to do, and that's to cut inflation. 
And the more hawkish the Fed is, obviously, that's going to put pressure on the market, especially in the face of, you know, falling growth and, and consumption expectations. Um, so I think what we're going to see is disinflation. Uh, that the, the rate of inflation will still be going up, just not at the same rate. Um, but I think it's going to be obviously important because the Fed's policy is hanging over the market right now. Now, I mean, Jeff, Ivory says that the, 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 the one job of the Fed is inflation. They actually have two jobs, right? They've also got maximum sustained employment. They've already gotten to that point there. So, so how much does that jobs picture and the tight labor market factor into what's going on in the markets right now, Jeff? You know, that's a great point, Dom, and certainly they are focused. We saw a better-than-expected jobs report, but nothing crazy. It was 390,000 jobs last Friday. But I think they also have a third mandate, Dom. The third mandate is that the market can't go down too much. And sure enough, we are seeing the Fed right now in a quiet period up until their June 14th meeting. So I think this week I'm actually cautiously optimistic. I think the market has the ability to close back above that 4170 level. And I see the two guiding lights this week is the U.S. dollar index as well as the 10-year note. I need to see the 10-year note under 3%, but the U.S. dollar index, no one's talking about that. It's come back down to 101. I think that's imperative for some of these stocks to heal domestically. So, so let's talk about that domestic trade overall. Ivory, when we talk about the U.S. dollar, maybe no surprise given the fact that interest rates are on the rise here and projected to keep doing so. Foreign capital likes finding those higher interest rates. They need dollars to invest in treasuries. All of that is factoring in and maybe going to hit large cap companies with multinational revenue exposure more, right? So is this the time where small cap stocks, despite the fears of a recession, are small and mid cap stocks becoming a little bit more attractive in your mind? I, I don't just because of the, the, the projected growth. Uh, and I think actually Treasury bond yields will actually start to come down as they start to look at what's happening with, with, with the growth. If you look at, back at the fourth quarter of 2018, Treasury bonds actually came down. Uh, and so I'd actually be a buyer of, of long term bonds, actually. And, and, and another thing to consider is that NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 are down a lot more than the S&P 500 are. Uh, and, and, and a big, big reason for that is they don't have a big footprint in utilities and consumer staples, more defensive securities that you'd see in the S&P 500. Now, 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 Ivory, if you look at that, given that backdrop, you said you like buying government bonds here, long term ones. Are there any key parts of the stock market that you do like if it's not technology? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd steer clear of, of technology. You've seen hiring freezes and some concerns in, in, in that sector. But as I mentioned, I'd want to be defensive at bond proxies. Uh, utilities and consumer staples. You know, it, when, when the consumer is being confronted with higher energy uh, prices and higher food costs, they may not go on vacation. They may not buy, um, you know, a luxury item, but they're certainly going to buy toothpaste and pay their light bill. So I'd be more defensive and I'd own sectors like that, uh, as well as precious metals and gold. All right. That seems pretty defensive. And Jeff, we will give the last word to you. What do you well, like right now? What do you like right now? What do you what do you stay away from? I agree with Ivory, and certainly we are tactically allocated to energy. Energy is by far the best sector, so I'm not going to repeat that. But to his point about consumer staples, look at Estee Lauder. You know, EL has been a name that's really a laggard on the year to date, but he's absolutely right. You're going to see people specifically over in Asia coming out, buying some of these tangible blue chip names. So we want to remain industrial focused. We think there's value. That wrestling match between rest, uh, between technology, stocks really selling off. But I think it makes a ton of sense, Dom, as we are looking for the 10-year note. I am in agreement with Ivory. The 10-year note needs to come back down to 2.75. And you can buy TLT. For the first time all year, I think I sure. can actually say that. You can buy TLT because it's a 
imperative for the Fed's rhetoric, for their narrative, and for their path for the tenure to cool off from where it started earlier in the year. All right, Jeff Kilberg, Ivory Johnson, gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a good day. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next with the Dow implied higher at the opening bell. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.